Hello, I'm Jeremy McMahon, meditation teacher, Tibetan Buddhist scholar, and audio engineer. And welcome to Meditating with Friends, a podcast where we explore meditation through friendly conversation. Each episode includes a guided meditation that you are invited to join. If you enjoy this podcast and are interested in working with me one-on-one to help deepen your meditation practice, check out my website, jeremymcmindfulness.com. Now, enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. It is your friend. Jeremy McMindfulness here with another episode of Meditating with Friends. Uh, you may notice that <laughs> it sounds a little different than the pristine audio quality that you're used to when it comes to this podcast, uh, but I am actually on the move. <clears throat> I am in Virginia Beach, my hometown, and I am walking through First Landing State Park, but you know, the real heads know that uh, it it's, will always be Seashore, Seashore State Park. <laughs> um, so yeah, this beautiful state park in Virginia Beach. Uh, and yeah, this episode is going to be a little different. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on myself today. No guests. I wanted to do an episode. Well, I've, I've thought that I've, I should do an episode where I kind of give you all a bit of a brat background to who I am and how I became Jeremy McMindfulness. Uh, Just in case, you know, you don't know my background and you've just found this podcast and you're like, wow, this Jeremy guy is super cool. I want him to be my friend. Well, I am your friend already. So yeah, tell you a little bit about myself and what better place to do that than Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, in my hometown in the landscape that really uh, has defined who I am. Uh, I'll probably talk a lot about the landscape in this podcast uh, and landscapes in general, just because for me, they're really important. And in particular, when it comes to my Buddhism and my Buddhist studies, you know, I've been very much focused on the mountains, on the Himalayas, uh, but I come from the beach. Uh, So yeah, I'm going to take a little break now, go a little bit deeper on the trail, and uh, you'll hear from me soon. Okay, I just moved from a brief detour on the uh, High Dune Trail, and now I am on the Bald Cypress Trail, as we do have a lot of bald cypresses in the swampy areas of this park. Uh, Also, fun fact, I'm enjoying the uh, Spanish moss here. This is actually the most northern place that Spanish moss uh, exists uh, within North America, so pretty cool. But yeah, so as I said, in my hometown, going to be talking about myself. Uh, I was not born in Virginia Beach, though. I was actually born in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I moved down to Virginia Beach when I was three years old. Now, my family uh, never really raised me any particular religion. Both my parents were raised Christian, uh, but, you know, they've both felt that religion is a personal choice. 
and you know decided that they should let have the, their children decide for themselves what religion they'd want to practice rather than you know forcing anything upon them but with that being said of course you know like like a lot of americans you know kind of a vague christian background um you know I, i'd go to church sometimes on easter sunday or christmas or things like that but yeah never never really uh super religious uh, in my family uh, now, so where did, where did I get interested in religion? I really, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe just cause there was a vacuum for, uh, religion, uh, you know, that's how I got interested in it. Um, but I've also always just been into Asia, uh, China stuff for a lack of a better term, you know, and like as a kid, you know, if you, at least for me, I don't know about you, but as a kid, I kind of conflated Asia and China to mean one thing, you know, which of course it's not <laughs> the same thing. Uh, but you know, I just like Chinese stuff. I liked how Chinese stuff looked. Um, I liked martial arts. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I've always felt pretty drawn uh, to that part of the world. Uh, so yeah, I, I was just always into that stuff. And, uh, you know, when I was first exposed to religion, I remember, I remember very distinctly the, uh, the moment when I first learned about the concept of God, uh, from my cousin, Chris, uh, who was just, I was just hanging out with, but, um, yeah, it was, it always like weirded me out that there was like, of course I imagine like, you know, some old white man in the sky, uh, looking down on me. Um, yeah, it just seemed weird. The idea of it seemed weird to me. Uh, didn't really sit with me. Um, but so actually when I was a kid, I was actually pretty like anti-religion. I was like a hardcore atheist when I was like eight years old. Um, <laughs> so I think that's mainly <laughs> where people should leave their atheism <laughs> after they're older than eight years old. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, but then I don't know, starting like 10, 11, 12, I don't know. I started to get what I think maybe can be described as a, you know, mystical longing. And I, I don't know. I just sort of started getting fascinated with religion and particularly religions in Asia. So, you know, learning about Taoism, uh, learning about Buddhism, learning a little bit about Confucianism, but you know, Confucianism isn't really that fun if you study it. Uh, no offense if you, if you do like to study it, but personally for me, it's not the most interesting. Um, but yeah, so I was always inter interested in that. And, um, one key person on my journey was uh, a friend of my mom's, uh, Barbara Whitmore, and she was also very into just kind of religion and spirituality in general. And she really helped uh, kind of foster, um, you know, my interest in this. Uh, she also taught me how to write haikus, uh, which was kind of the first form of poetry or writing that I really kind of took akin to and really decided that I liked. 
Um, and yeah, so I just, I just started getting into this stuff. And now I'll have to also mention my brother too. Um, my older brother, Peter, who, uh, passed away, um, when I was, when I was 19, I was about to say when I was 25, he was 25, I was 19. Um, but as he would remind me, you know, he was always like, I'm the one that got you into this Buddhist shit. Um, and it's true. I mean, he was pretty into Buddhism. Um, he, I, I'd say, you know, he had a very popular view of, of Buddhism. You know, I wouldn't say he was by no means a religious scholar, um, maybe a scholar of sneakers, but that's a different thing. Uh, and yeah, so he, he was really into it. So that kind of encouraged me to get into it. He probably got into it through the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, to be honest, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, so I've just always had this kind of interest in Asia in particular, that part of the world, and then kind of this mystical longing, as I would call it. Um, yeah, and uh, in my life is far back as being 10, 11 years old. So yeah, that's the beginning. All right, now I've moved on to Long Creek Trail, and where previously I was on Bald Cypress with a lot of like kind of wooded swampy areas. Now I'm walking along, I guess you could call it a creek, um, but it's more of a marshy creek, uh, you know, because um, we are in the marshlands of Tidewater, Virginia. So, next story, or next step in the uh, Jeremy McMindfulness story, um, I guess getting into high school, still also really maintained this interest in spirituality and studying religions, and I was branching out from the Eastern stuff, like I actually started getting a kick out of learning about Christianity, uh, learning about Judaism, um, and and also very particularly learning about Islam, particularly after, you know, in our post 9-11 world, uh, I found Islam particularly fascinating. Um, I also had some great teachers uh, in high school that really supported my interests. Uh, my teacher, Mrs. Racine, Pam Racine, uh, she she had a global affairs class my freshman year um, of high school, and that was just a great kind of like introduction to different uh, worlds, or, you know, different countries, and just kind of a general global studies. But of course, studying the religion of different places was always my favorite part of the class. Um, and then she also had later on in my 11th grade year, uh, we had, uh, what was it? It was, we were on a trimester schedule at, uh, Cape Henry Collegiate, my private school that I went to. Um, and so we had a semester, a trimester of philosophy and then ethics and then psychology. So kind of also kind of feeding into the, you know, bigger questions type of arena. Um, but then moving on in our story, really the next like critical thing or a very critical thing that set me on my path. I'm just checking out these little fish. It's a little fish, oyster shells, powerful sun. Anyway, the next step in the Jeremy McMindfulness journey uh, was going to 
Bhutan when I was 18. So yeah, like I said, got an opportunity to go to Bhutan when I was 18 uh, as a senior in high school uh, through a program at Cape Henry Collegiate called Nexus, uh, which is kind of a their own travel abroad company, basically. And um, I went with a school teacher, Mr. Fluharty, uh, who has really been helping me and pushing me, motivating me to you know get out there with my meditation teaching. So thank you, Mr. Fluharty, for your support. And, you know, thank you for taking me to Bhutan because I don't think I'd be doing this if I didn't make that trip. Uh, So, yeah, we went to Bhutan in 2006. Uh, We were the first American high school to ever do a trip to Bhutan, which is pretty cool. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Bhutan is a small Himalayan kingdom in between um, India and China and basically has the same culture, uh, same ethnicity, same relative language, very similar. I shouldn't say the same because not the same, but similar to, uh, to Tibet, uh, much more mountainous or not, well, more forest mountains, um, than Tibet where Tibet is on the plateau. Oh, taking a seat. So, got to go to Bhutan and blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, first time I'd ever left the country. Uh, and the thing I realized, you know, I, like, I always kn- knew that I liked Tibetan stuff, and but I didn't know what it was, you know. Like, I'd seen images of Buddhas, you know, from all over uh, as, you know, a kid into into Buddhism. But the ones from Tibet or from the Himalayas, by and far away, always my favorite. And I, even though I didn't know where they were from, I was just like, I like how this looks. And then going to Bhutan, you know, you're thrown into the heart of that. And particularly going to the temples and being in the shrine rooms, surrounded by, you're surrounded by the art. You know, you're surrounded by the imagery, you're surrounded by the aesthetics. Uh, and I absolutely fell in love with the aesthetics of Tibetan Buddhism. Now it took me like years to realize like that's really what drew me in to specifically Tibetan Buddhism, um, was the aesthetic quality of it. So (laughs) whenever anybody's like, well, this wouldn't it be better if like they took the money to make this artwork you know, and used it to, you know, feed somebody or, or help your fellow person. Like, well, you know, that's certainly an argument for that, but this artwork does serve a purpose in terms of like getting people into the religion. It's religious marketing. I'm okay with saying that. (laughs) I think it's cool. Um, so yeah, I went to Bhutan and absolutely fell in love with the culture, the landscape again, which, not quite desert like uh, like Tibet. Not not a big plateau, but very large um, forested mountains. And actually, Bhutan in their constitution says that I can't remember the exact number, but at least like sixty-five percent of their landscape must remain forested. Also, cool that we went to Bhutan before it became a democracy. <laughs> So, um, yeah, 
became a democracy two, two years later in 2008. So yeah, I was just hooked. I just, I loved being in the temples in particular. And that was the moment when I had to go back or when I realized I had to go back was when I missed the feeling of being in those temples. So yeah, that closes up that section of my story. I'm going to move on. This is, well, <laughs> this is a very pretty spot, uh, but I am going to move on. Um, and you'll hear from me soon. All right. Time for the next chapter. Now I'm walking along <clears throat> same trail, but uh, closer to Broad Bay. We've left the creek, and now we are into Broad Bay, which is, uh, I guess, a small bay behind, um, you know, a little bit inland of the Chesapeake, where I am also been spending a lot of my time. Uh, but yeah, so after Bhutan, you know, as I mentioned, was my senior year of high school, um, and I went to college, um, and I went to the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. So, only an hour away from Virginia Beach, pretty similar landscape, pretty similar marsh, water, topography, all that jazz, and, uh... Like I said, you know, I went to Bhutan previously, and that was the beginning of, like, kind of my comparison between the oceans and the mountains. Uh, you know, how how are they similar? How are they the same? Uh, and, you know, just being... It's just important to me and my own personal, like, symbolism uh, that, you know, I grew up in the beach, but uh, love the mountains and... Um, yeah, you know, the, the crossover between the two. And, you know, the, the Himalayas were, in fact, completely underwater at one point and rose from the ocean when the Indian subcontinent slammed into the mainland of Asia. So that whole kind of connection there between, yeah, again, the mountains and the sea or the mountains and the ocean is like very, a very powerful symbol for me and uh, kind of my processes and my thoughts. Um, but yeah, so college, <laughs> William and Mary, great school, great education. And I knew going into college that I was either going to major in philosophy or religious studies. You know, what I didn't know going into college was that, you know, I'd have to live in the real world and make money at some point. But I, I wasn't worried about that. Uh, so very quickly, I realized, wow, I really like my religious studies classes a lot better than my philosophy classes. So that's what I picked, religious studies. I also knew I wanted to focus on Buddhism, in particular Tibetan Buddhism. And that's exactly what I did. And lucky for me, you know, William & Mary is a small liberal arts school. You know, we have... I don't even remember how many professors were in a religious studies department, but, you know, only a handful, like maybe less than a dozen, about a dozen or less than a dozen. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a small enough school that you have like one Buddhism professor, one Islam professor, one Hinduism professor. Uh, there's definitely a few more Judaism and Christianity professors. Um, but despite the school being small, I lucked out and was able to actually 
take classes with a three Tibetanologists um, that were my professors. So I'll just go ahead and shout them out. Uh, Kevin Vos, who is my advisor, um, and my main Buddhism professor at William & Mary. Um, Suzanne Bessinger, uh, who was also has a Tibetan studies background, but she was teaching the class on Hinduism. And then different department... Uh, Melissa Karen, who was uh, art history, actually. And I can't believe I got to take a Buddhist art history class with an expert in uh, who specialized in Himalayan art. Pretty cool. Pretty rare. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I had a great time at William & Mary. I honestly think that, you know, particularly for the money, it being an in-state school, for me, couldn't could not have gotten a better education anywhere else. And I particularly loved studying religious studies. Uh, I think it really taught me how to be objective um, as much as as one can be. Blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, whatever. Um, and it taught me not how it taught me to not judge. You know, um, it was it was a really interesting exercise to me. Uh, I think something I take for granted when compared to most people is that, you know, you just looking at a religion and just trying to understand how it functions without judging it, you know, without, you know, adding a moral uh, stipulation to it, you know, and I think it really helps me understand people and where they're coming from. Uh, you know, if they have a particular religious affiliation, you know, of course it's going to affect their worldview. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really, really enjoyed it. And like I said, I got a fair amount of Buddhist and Tibetan studies there, um, and under my belt, uh, which again, small for a small liberal arts school, um, is probably pretty rare. So yeah, college was cool and I spent all my time studying, but, um, also Along with going to William Mary, I also studied abroad because I knew pretty quickly I had to get back to the Himalayas. So I did the SIT, School for International Training, um, Tibetan Studies, Tibetan and Himalayan Studies program, which I think is, has a slightly different name now. Um, but yeah, I found the study abroad program. It was an amazing program. Um, honestly, I still say that it was the most significant formal education uh, experience of my life, uh, hands down. Um, and what's so cool about it is that each student gets to, during like the last month of the semester, uh, they get to um, do a, a month-long independent study project on whatever they want. So I'll talk a little bit more about what I did later, but yeah, I went on this program. Um, it was based, uh, initially in Dharamsala. So that's where we ended up. Um, so I lived in Dharamsala for about a month, which for those of you who don't know, Dharamsala is where the Tibetan government in exile is. It is where the Dalai Lama lives when he's not traveling. Uh, and yeah, so I lived there for a month and studied Tibetan, uh, which I wish I remembered more, but I definitely don't. Um, and yeah, Dharamsala is okay. I don't know. It's a pretty weird place, uh, in my opinion. It's very small, particularly where the Tibetans are. Um, they actually are in a subsection of, 
uh, Dharamsala called McLeod Ganj, which is up kind of above the rest of the city. Um, and yeah, Dharamsala, I mean, it's cool, uh, it's, but it's not my favorite place in the world. <laughs> I'll just be honest about it. Um, it's, it's a, can be a very hard place to be, uh, emotionally because as I found out from traveling throughout other places in the Himalayas, particularly where Tibetans in exile live, um, you know, McLeod God Ganj is the heart of the exile community, you know, and the, so they're really focused on, you know, freeing Tibet, which <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned it before, you know, hot topic, but you know, hot button topic in the nineties, seems like nobody cares about it anymore, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, so it can, again, can be kind of a strange place, uh, to be. Also, apparently there's a lot of, a lot of drugs in Dharamsala, <laughs> apparently. No, I mean, that's what I've been told. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I spent a month in Dharamsala. Then we originally actually were going to go to Tibet, but hey, I just happened to choose to go during the 50th anniversary of uh, the Tibetan uprising and uh, the Dalai Lama fleeing uh, Tibet into exile. So the People's Republic of China are not stupid. Uh, they shut down the borders of Tibet during March, which is when it happened, March 8th or 9th, I believe. Um, so they shut down the border of Tibet, not letting anybody go in. So I didn't go to Tibet and still have not been to Tibet. Um, but I know I'll get there one day. And so let's see, didn't go to Tibet, but went to Nepal uh, and I spent about a month there and absolutely fell in love with Kathmandu as a city, uh, the capital of Nepal. Now Kathmandu is, uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, the nicest place in the world, I guess, you know, it's a big Asian city, uh, it's very polluted, like a lot of them are, um, but it's actually, I just said it was big, but it's actually pretty small. I mean, it's its nothing compared to, like, Delhi or Calcutta, right? And, like, those are cities of, like, 10 million-plus people. Uh, Kathmandu is not that. I think it's maybe the population is around a million. Not sure. But way smaller, way easier to manage and kind of wrap your mind around than Delhi or Calcutta. Um, and it just had this kind of sense of... Frank, frankly, chaos that I like really enjoyed. Uh, you know, I was so this was t 2009 when I first went there, so it is a long time ago. Um, but they were they had load shedding, which is where they you only have electricity for certain times of the day. Um, I remember the first night going out to you know into the streets. Uh, with all the electricity out, trying to find uh, some coke to mix with the shitty whiskey that we were drinking, and uh, 
you know, just there being like fires in the streets. Uh, dude, just people burning trash with like little little fires. But I was like, this is cool. <laughs> and my my quote that other students of on my program got a kick out of was that uh, I was like, I feel like being in Kathmandu is the closest I'll ever get to being in New York uh, in the 1970s. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of the vibe to me. But I love it. I love it. You know. Um, and, uh, so yeah, spent two weeks there. God, I mean, it's so great. I mean, there's just so much, so much artwork, so much there to see. Um, so many holy sites, just absolutely, completely and utterly littered with holy sites. Like, you know, there's a, there'll be like a 17th, 16th century sculpture in the center of like a street with cars driving around it, you know, really a place where the sacred and the profane, uh, collapse into each other. Um, so yeah, it's really special. Um, and I loved it. And we lived in Boda, uh, Boda Nat near the Bodenath Stupa, and that's where all the um, Tibetans are. It's basically the Tibetan neighborhood that has been built up uh, starting in the 70s and, you know, is, is much larger now than it was even, like, I don't know, in the 90s, from what I've been told. Um, but, yeah, I love Boda. I love Boda uh, Stupa. Um... I love being in that neighborhood, and there's literally dozens. Oh, hey, frog. Well, toad. Oh, big, big toad. Big toad guy. Um, there's dozens and dozens of monasteries. I think there's like 40 monasteries or something, like, around Boda. And I love being there. I, I loved it in comparison to Dharamsala because I personally feel like people in Dharamsala are, you know, kind of focused on being in exile. And that's, as I said, it's the heart of the exile community. Now, um, Kathmandu, well, there's still definitely an exile population of refugees. You know, it just, it just felt to me like you know, the people were more focused on, like, teaching and learning about Buddhism. Uh, so, you know, it depends on what you're into. If you're, if you're into the Tibetan stuff and you're into, you know, the government in exile and helping out that situation, you know, like Dharamsala is the one for you. If you're more into just learning about the culture and Tibetan Buddhism in general and and yeah, just the religion, and you're there to study Dharma, uh, I think Kathmandu is the place for you. Um, but yeah, I really love Kathmandu. I was there for, like I said, well, about two weeks, and then the second half of the month we went trekking in Solokumbu, which is kind of the old route to Everest. We didn't go to Namche Bazaar, which is uh, famous for, you know, being the entrance to Everest Base Camp. But 
I'm pretty sure I saw Everest. <laughs> that was always funny when people are like, someone would be like, oh yeah, that mountain over there is Everest. And then we'd be like, wow, that's cool. And we'd walk a little ways. And then like later in the evening, some that same person would come up and be like, yeah, that mountain wasn't actually Everest. <laughs> so, I mean, they're all looking, they're all amazing. Uh, I mean, they all just, yeah, look amazing. And so where I was is the um, Sherpa area. You know, you've heard of, you've probably heard of a Sherpa. But a Sherpa isn't a job, it's an ethnicity, it's a Tibetan ethnicity. Um, and so we were, yeah, in Sherpa country, basically, which was, again, really awesome. And I just, I did love waking up and being like, all right, this is what I got to do. I got to walk from here to here today. And like, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so it was pretty chill. Um, and let's see. So get back from the trek. And then sign for my independent study project, which is in Ladakh, my favorite place in the world. It's one of them. It's, it's, let me put it this way. It's the place that if I could, if I could only go back to one of the places I'd visited over the years in the Himalayas, um, Ladakh would be it for sure. Ladakh is the most northern part of India. Um, it's part of the state of Jammu Kashmir. Uh, and it is technically on the Tibetan plateau. So it's basically as close as you can get to Tibet without going into Tibet. And it's incredible. Just the landscape. Again, these are the mountains. These are the Himalayas. These are the, the mountains that we know were pushed up by by the water, or pushed up by the subcontinent, uh, bumping into mainland Asia. And, uh, yeah, I've, again, fell in love with Ladakh. And Ladakh, what's so fascinating about it is it's the meeting place of the Buddhist um, and Islamic world. So even though they're all ethnically Tibetan, about half the population of Ladakh is Buddhist and the other half is uh, Muslim. So, and if you study, you know, <laughs> the religion, uh, you ca I can't really think of two religions that, you know, at least at the surface level would be uh, more opposed to each other than Buddhism and Islam, you know, just completely different outlook, just a completely different philosophy and understanding of how the world works but here in Ladakh they do actually uh, do a pretty good job of um, you know keeping the peace between them is, is it perfect are there no tensions between them no and as I began to get into my research I was definitely beginning to pick up on said tensions um, but I, I did my research on Sufism and Buddhism uh, in Ladakh and it's kind of a ridiculous topic to do, and again, looking back at it, uh, I feel like I was, it was a bit naive, um, but I wanted to do it, and, you know, again, it was this kind of mystical impulse, I think, that I have, um, so comparing these two forms of mysticism, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, which, you know, <laughs> probably the most mystical of all Buddhisms, um, and Sufism, which of course is, um, mystical Islam. Now, I did not make any contact with any living Sufis, which 
was the hard thing except i did meet somebody who i think was a sufi but then i asked him if i could talk to him about sufism and he's like i can't talk to you about it so <laughs> so i ended up you know kind of discussing more general um buddhist muslim relations in ladakh which was awesome um but yeah so came back to nepal and uh after ladakh came back to america after that and uh you know again i knew pretty immediately because that was my junior year second semester of junior year so next fall i was going into my senior year and of course during my senior year everybody's asking me what are you going to do after you graduate and uh, I just told people I wanted to go back to Nepal. That's literally the the answer I would give people. It was just like, I want to go back to Nepal. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but I think I'm going to move on a little bit. I'm going to actually dunk and get some water on me because I'm pretty hot. Um, but I'm going to keep moving. And so, yeah, we'll discuss that uh, in our next chapter. sun is getting a little more orange moving from afternoon into evening don't worry <laughs> i got plenty of sunlight uh before oh, i'll have plenty of sunlight for my walk back i won't be walking in the dark though i do love walking through these woods in the dark because i feel safe and held and protected in them anyway so jeremy gets back from studying abroad in india and nepal uh and i go into my senior year and at this point in my life i'm like i am going to do a phd in tibetan studies that is like what i'm pretty set on doing so i'm like very gung-ho about the academia uh i end up doing a senior thesis um, starting to kind of explore the same themes of basically the connections that Tibet has to more quote-unquote Western cultures. Um, so I wrote my senior thesis on Bun, which was, uh, Bun is a complicated topic, <laughs> but, uh, Bun is often what people refer to as the indigenous religion of Tibet, um, or as I prefer it, the um, the alternative religion of Tibet um, compared to Buddhism. Now, why do I not call it the indigenous religion of Tibet? Because if you study Bun, the Bun pose themselves, the practitioners of Bun, uh, say that it doesn't come from Tibet. They say that it comes from Shangsheng or Omo Omlo Omolungring. I'm trying to pull this out. Um or toxic or something like that. Um and probably didn't well, they don't say it came from Shangsheng. They say it's settled around Shangsheng, which was an old empire in Tibet. Anyway, um so that's why I don't like to call it the indigenous religion of Tibet. Um, what was the indigenous religion of Tibet? We do not know. Of course, there are a whole host of religious practices that are native to Tibet. 
are seemingly native to Tibet that aren't part of Buddhism. So Bun becomes kind of this catch-all phrase to mean any type of shamanistic or animistic, you know, practices uh, within the Tibetan cultural sphere, which again, I don't think that's really the correct use of the word Bun. Um, and Bun, just to add one layer, uh, another layer of complexity to it, Bun is uh, still a religion that survives today. It's called the Yungjung Bun. Yungjung uh, means uh, eternal. It also means swastika. Uh, because swastika is, is a symbol of perpetual motion. You know, and again, if you, if you... I mean, I kind of feel everybody knows this, but if you don't, the swastika... Um, was actually appropriated by the Nazis um, and became associated with them. But it's a, it's a very ancient and very old symbol that goes back thousands of years. You can find it all over in different cultures. Uh, but anyway, so the Jungbung is a living religion that you know you can you can go study with the Jungbung if you want. You can practice, um, you know, Bun Dharma. Now, what's the difference between Bun and Buddhism? Well, at least for the Jungbung, it's really not that different. They basically believe all the same things: believe in reincarnation, uh, believe in the doctrine of emptiness. Um, all that good stuff. Believe in karma. Um, the only difference, really, is that Jung Jung Bun says that they had a different founder named Tompa Shenrob, who <laughs> goes back to, as they say, I think it's like 16,000 BCE or something like that. Like something that would, <laughs> if it were accurate, um you know, historically accurate, let's say, uh, they would claim to, that they would be the, by far the oldest religion in the world. Um, so yeah, so that's a little treatise and bun. And what I was writing about was trying to find remnants of Iranian or Persian culture within bun and bun practices, uh, because according to the bun pose, their founder, Tompa Shenrab, came from, as I mentioned, uh, Omolungring or Taksik, but a lot of people suggest that it's Persia or Iran. So that's why I was looking for them, for that, and um, yeah, I did okay, I did my homework. I mean, really, I like, in order to do that topic justice, uh, I have to have crazy linguistic skills, which I crazily do not have good linguistic skills. I actually really feel that I'm bad at learning at language, learning languages. So, um, yeah, I did my senior thesis on that topic and I mean, it was great. I got to read a lot. It was pretty cool actually having like a four credit class, but not actually having a class to go to. So like my senior year was pretty chill. I, you know, as long as I stayed on top of my work, which I did, like, uh, yeah, it was good. And, you know, hey, I graduated with honors. Haha. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and that was going to always be my thing. If I were to go into a Tibetan Studies PhD, which every day seems increasingly less likely, um, 
you know that's what I really want to focus on because if you uh, do Tibetan studies it's like you kind of go one of two routes there's the like Indic Tibetan studies so you study like Indian history and how that relates to Tibet and you know you study Sanskrit in Tibetan um, but the other way is the Chinese uh, Sino-Tibetan studies as they call it and you know there you get more of a background in China you learn Chinese and Tibetan um, but the thing that's missing from the conversation in terms of the, the cultures that were influencing Tibet uh, is Iran. So the Iranian-Tibetan studies, I think, is the hot new thing. I think it should be, and I think it will be the hot new thing in Buddhist or in Tibetan studies um, because that's the one that people have forgotten about. And there's definitely are. Uh, there definitely is evidence to suggest that there is certainly cultural exchange. Tibet, before they became an empire, sorry, actually, Tibet, before they became Buddhist, had an empire. Um, and they were one of the three main powers fighting uh, for control in Central Asia during the 7th century. Uh, so it was them, the Chinese of the Tang dynasty. Yeah, and then the Arabs. So they were like they were in that part of the world. And if you actually look at representations of Tibetan kings, the early Tibetan kings, the Dharma kings, it seems that they modeled their kingship off of Iranian models of kingship. So, yeah, there's definitely cultural ties there, and so that's definitely something to explore. Again. Did Bun come from Iran? Uh, probably not. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I just really think there are fascinating cultural ties. And uh, years later, you know, I've seen that the scholarship has begun to grow on this topic. So pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm going to split of the trail. i got to decide which way I want to go. But I will be back soon. All right, so I graduate with honors, cum laude, yeah baby, from William & Mary, one of the toughest schools in the country, with a degree in religious studies. <laughs> and what does that get you in this life? Not much. So I spent my summer, you know, kind of hanging, not really worrying about things and jobs and of course, you know, this was right two years after the, you know, Great Recession of and bank crash of 2008. And so, like, things were pretty bad when it comes to the job market, especially if you were a religious studies major, even if you graduated with honors and cum laude. Uh, so I spent my summer hanging out having a good time summer was coming to a close I reach out to my former uh, program leader for the study abroad program send her a copy of my thesis just say hey and I'm also like hey uh, I'm just curious if there's any jobs available that you might know of for somebody with a background in Tibetan studies and only a bachelor's degree uh and she was like, well, 
Actually, we are looking to have a teaching assistant uh, join the program, uh, the Tibetan Studies program that you did. Uh, would you be interested in the job? Um, and I was like, yes, please. So I talked to the current director of the program, and she was like, all right, buy a ticket. When can you get here? Because we're starting next week. And I was like, well, I got to I'll be there in like five days. Don't remember exactly, but it was less than a week that I like, I was like, boom, all right. Well, I guess I'm going into Nepal. <laughs> so it was pretty crazy <laughs> that, you know, I basically yeah, got the job and then five days later flew out to Nepal, had to prepare for everything. And, and uh, I was off and, you know, did what I said I wanted to do. I told people that after I graduated, I wanted to go back to Nepal, and that's what I did. So I went back and worked as a teaching assistant for SITs. Uh, now the program had moved its base to Kathmandu, which I was frankly uh, thrilled about because I would rather live in Kathmandu than Dharamsala. Uh, so lived in Kathmandu, lived in a monastery for the first semester I was there. Um, and basically kind of got to retrace my steps. Uh, you know, I, w I, we went to Ladakh. Um, so I got to, yeah, revisit and kind of guide. And I was, I mean, in a way I was sort of a glorified babysitter, but, and I was only like, you know, a year or two older than these kids that I was, you know, babysitting. Um, and yeah, I, uh, but you know, I think I was helpful. <laughs> I like to think I was helpful. I think I, I know I was helpful because just like as somebody that had been there had kind of been through all the things that they had been through, uh, you know, I could kind of like walk them through, through it and ease it into it. Yeah. I think it was helpful. Um, so yeah, worked for two semesters, um, went to Ladakh again, went to Dharamsala again. Um, and then the second semester, I actually got to go to Bhutan for, uh, three weeks for free, which is pretty crazy. So, I mean, that was another big, that was originally like my big impetus was like, I want to go back to Bhutan. And when I did the SIT program initially, first they were like, yes, it'll be Bhutan. And then they're like, well, now it's going to be Tibet. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, no, you don't get either. And I was like, uh, that's kind of lame. But, uh, you know, I got to go back. I got to see it again. And yeah, Bhutan is a really, really uh, interesting place and just, just gorgeous, just drop dead gorgeous, um, in terms of the landscape there. It's just so pretty. Um, but yeah, so I did that and, you know, yeah, I really thought I was ready to lead, live that expat life and be like, I'm going to live in Kathmandu forever. Um, and I wasn't. Uh, I got homesick. <laughs> no joke. And I mean, the work situation was stressful too. It was my first job, you know, out of college. And, uh, you know, I just kind of felt like, you know, you know as, as smart as I was, um, or as smart as I am, you know, it's like, 
education and the real world are two different things. It's like you can be really good at school and you cannot be good at living in the real world. Um, so, you know, I was ready to come back. And I mean, Kathmandu is, you know, I was singing its praises earlier, but it is, it's still a very intense place. And it was beginning to like really wear me down, especially towards the end there. So I was sort of at a loss and I was like, I don't think I want to do Tibetan studies anymore, you know, um, or at least the PhD side of it. Like, I just don't think I can fully, you know, dedicate myself that much, um, to this endeavor. And, you know, I was just having thoughts, second thoughts about it. It was like, you know, like, I mean, as much as I love this stuff, it's like, what good does like another Tibetan studies professor going to do, you know, who researches like very obscure topics that only other Tibetan scholars know about, and then ends up just teaching, you know, very, very specific, very privileged group of people. So yeah, I just sort of, it kind of threw me for a loop in terms of like my life plan. I mean, which is probably a good thing, you know, in, in terms of like not jumping into a PhD program and then halfway through being like, oh God, what am I going to do with my life? But yeah, it was very quickly like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I want to go back to school per se. I also didn't want to do the thing which seemingly everybody was doing at the time, which was since they couldn't have a, couldn't find a job, they were going to, to grad school. And I didn't want to go to grad school and accrue all that debt, especially when I uh, didn't think that there'd be a job for me at the other side, especially if I did religious studies, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I was kind of at a loss. Um, went home. I uh, lived at home for a while, you know, through the fall, and of and I was dating somebody at the time who did go to grad school, and she was going to Duke, and I was living in Virginia Beach, um, and eventually we did break up, and. Again, kind of also threw my life into kind of uh, a bit of a crisis, just a bit shaky, not knowing where, what I was doing, who I was, or where I was going. And then I went to New York uh, to visit my cousin. Of course, I've been to New York City before, but I went and I was like, wow, this is like, yes, I love being here. This is the place for me. So I decided to move to New York um, that summer and uh, basically been there ever since, you know. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, certainly it was a struggle getting your, uh, you know, uh, foothold in New York, um, especially if you didn't go to college there. That's what I found pretty quickly. I don't know. I'm, I mean, basically everybody I know uh, went to college there <laughs> now. Uh, everybody that I know now went to college in New York and, you know, really gave them a stable base for knowing and navigating and exploring that particular city. So, 
I get to New York and I bum around for a while. And I know that I really want to work at the Rubin Museum of Art, which is a Himalayan art museum based in Manhattan. So, you know, all the artwork that I love. Um, mostly Tibetan stuff, but also Nepalese and um, Indian stuff too. But anyway, yeah, Buddhist, Buddhist artwork. <laughs> so I go... I applied to job after job after job there, um, get turned down for the mall, get kind of bitter about it, but eventually I get hired to work the front desk, um, just taking tickets. So start working there. Um, by the end of that year, I am promoted as a tour guide and I think I very quickly set myself apart from everyone else uh in the education department most everyone else in that you know i have a, an actual background in the topic of the museum shocker um and you know you're probably gonna hear my uh, cynicism come out uh, about um museum work and museum studies um but yeah, it's like, I was like, why aren't these people hiring me? And then when I got there, I was like, oh, it's because they all studied museum studies, not Tibetan studies. Um, and they just want to find other people that know about how to teach in museums rather than, you know, people with the background of uh, the topic, which... Yeah, maybe, I don't know, I should, maybe I shouldn't get into my thoughts about that. But anyway, particularly with a, particularly with a topic as complex as Tibetan Buddhism, it's like, yeah, what's, what's harder, do you think? <laughs> learning about Tibetan Buddhism or learning how to give a good tour? I don't know. You decide. <clears throat> so... I work there, um, and uh, I'm working mostly part time. Um, but eventually, you know, I'm, I'm making, I'm hustling, like I'm making an effort. I'm trying to stand out there, you know. And eventually, it paid off. I was offered a full time position that was specifically created for me um, as the coordinator of interpretation and engagement. Um, and it's cool because, like, you know, I'm leading tours. I'm teaching other tour guides how to lead tours. Um, I'm actually worked with the marketing team, too, to develop social media content. So it, it was a great job, and I, I really loved it a lot. Um, now, during this, um, actually, a little before I got the full-time job, the Rubens started their weekly meditation program. So... Uh, every well at the time it was every Wednesday they'd have a group meditation uh, and it'd be pretty prominent people um, probably the most prominent person that we had pretty regularly that they still have pretty regularly is Sharon Salzberg um, but some other ones uh, Tracy Cochran is another one she's the editor of Parabola magazine which also was funny because my mom used to buy me that magazine as a kid and then I was like oh here's the woman that's ed been editing it this whole time and now here I am working where she's leading meditations um, and then another personal meditation teacher of mine Kimberly Brown uh, so it was a great program um, that 
you know, it's COVID now, so they have moved to a digital version. Uh, but I would basically help the meditation teachers, you know, select artwork that went along with the theme of the meditation. Uh, so I got to give Sharon Salzberg a tour of the Rubin, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then I would also lead the tour after the meditation program. Um, where we'd actually, I'd take a small group of people and we'd actually go up and see the piece of artwork that, um, had been projected on the screen during the meditation. Now this, uh, not only did this give me, you know, experience with sitting and watching these great meditation teachers talk and speak about meditation, uh, but... Uh, there is a gentleman that would join me on the tours named Tom Campbell, who, if you've listened to the podcast refer before, you've probably heard me refer to him as my main meditation teacher. Um, and so... Uh, I love Tom and the thing about Tom, <laughs> but the thing about Tom is that he does this thing generally, uh, on these tours where, you know, he'd come on my tours and I would say my th piece about the artwork and then he would kind of launch into, uh, what he thought of the artwork and sort of try to fill in the gaps where he felt people were or where I was lagging and people were having confusion. Now, for a lot of the tour guides, that really annoyed people, annoyed tour guides that you'd have, be, have your tour, like, hijacked um, by Tom, as often <laughs> the way people put it. But uh, I personally didn't mind because I loved hearing Tom talk because he was just a wealth of knowledge about all things Buddhism. Um, and he, he was a monk for 14 years. <laughs> uh, you know, he's an American, American white guy. Uh, but yeah, he was a monk for 17 years, or sorry, 14 years. Um, he was a monk in the Tibetan tradition, tradition for seven years, and then he was a monk in the Zen tradition for seven years. So, like, he knows stuff. Um, and we sort of developed this relationship because he was coming on this tour with me every day, uh, every week. And, you know, people would be like, does it bother you when Tom does that? Or they're like, who is that? I'm like, no, A, it doesn't bother me. B, it's Tom. Uh, <laughs> you know, because again, I just, I was, I wanted to hear what he had to say about the artwork. You know, I was just like, this is just a great learning experience for me. Um, so we developed this relationship and we began talking and we'd actually meet after work sometimes and sit and discuss. Uh, I'd, I'd really just have questions for him about Buddhism, about the artwork, about meditation eventually. And yeah, I mean, it was just, again, I just look back at that time um, with such fondness um, and as as a, as a really a gift, um, because Tom was just so generous with his knowledge and he would literally spend as long as I wanted, um, you know, talking to him about this stuff. Uh, you know, again, going into just incredible detail. Um, you know, he truly is, uh, 
a bodhisattva in, in terms of like you know if people want to know about the dharma if they want to know about buddhism like he will tell you <laughs> and there's nothing that he loves more uh than telling you about it um because i i, I interpret it because i believe that he believes that it's really the most important thing you can really talk to anybody about uh so one day after one of my tours i ask him hey tom do you know anything about the laundry um and for those of you who don't know the laundry is the signature practice of the sakya school of tibetan buddhism and i was sort of intrigued by it it's laundry means path uh and fruit so the idea behind the laundry is that the path is the fruit the path is the result um and i was like that's kind of huh <laughs> that's intriguing i don't really know what that means but like okay maybe i'll ask tom about it ask tom about it his eyes light up he's like oh yeah i'll tell you about the lamb tray let's meet up after you get off work and i'm like okay and so we meet up and just wham starts laying this stuff out for me and you know i wish i could you know remember it better but like long story short i mean he just started spelling out you know the, kind of the idea behind the system which is you know that you know the path the path is the fruit it's all right there you know the path to enlightenment is enlightenment um and that goes into this whole idea of like samsara actually being the same as nirvana um and that you know pretty much all forms of buddhism if you get down to it they're like you're already enlightened you know you just have to realize that like so that's kind of the idea behind it is the path is the fruit the path to enlightenment is enlightenment um and he starts giving me like meditation instructions and i'm like ooh uh and at this point you know i i should say you know i've been meditating on and off i had been meditating on and off my entire life um and i i get good runs of meditation you know i go like have like six six weeks meditate every day awesome and then miss a day and you know not meditate again for a year or two uh so you know i i, I dabbled i'd had some experience with meditation um but he starts you know giving me very wonderful and detailed and deep instructions about meditation and I'm like, I gotta, I guess I, and we start meeting every week doing this. And I'm like, I guess I gotta meditate. You know, this guy is spending two to three hours with me and asking nothing in return. Nothing. Never asked for anything in return. I have to do something to honor what he's doing for me. So I meditated. <laughs> you know, I just started meditating. And I like, that's, to me in my life, like that is the moment when I became a true meditation practitioner uh and as i've said this on the podcast before but
but Tom told me that that's really the first, you know, the first step in on the spiritual path is when you adopt a practice um, that you're supposed to do every day, but you miss a day, but then the next day you do it again. You know, that, that resolve is what's key to, yeah, maintaining a spiritual practice or whatever type of practice you are doing. Um, so yeah, that was again, the moment that, uh, really started to all come home for me. And, you know, again, previously to that, I was like, I really thought I was just like, I'm just going to study Buddhism academically because this is interesting, you know? Uh, and I didn't really have any interest in actually practicing the religion. And like, I would say like philosophically, I'm a Buddhist, like Buddhist ontology, uh, or the description of, you know, what makes up the world, um, even before I considered myself a Buddhist, made the most sense to me out of any other description of it. Uh, but yeah, with Tom, you know, again, I was like, oh, this is what it's about. And, you know, cause again, like you tell yourself, you understand ideas in Buddhism and you do, uh, intellectually, but understanding something intellectually and understanding something experientially two very, very, very different things. So yeah, that's really when I started meditating, um, was because of, uh, those meetings I was having with Tom. Okay. So we just, uh, wrapped up my work with Tom and, um, I mean, the next really key thing in terms of my journey as a spiritual practitioner was, uh, participating in the Lamdre initiation of 2018 led by His Holiness Sakya Trichin. Now, as I mentioned previously, I'd asked Tom about the Lamdre and I would probably chalk this up to karma, but, you know, soon after I asked Tom about the Lamdre, uh, I find out that Sakya Trichin, the head of the Sakya order of Tibetan, of the Tibetan school of Buddhism, uh, is going to be in Walden, New York, where there's a Sakya temple, uh, leading said initiation into the Lamdre system. And it's free, <laughs> actually. Uh, the To be initiated, it was completely free. Now, of course, I had to figure out, like, how, you know, housing for two weeks while I was in Walden. Um, but, you know, that was really the moment that I really couldn't to say I'm not a Buddhist anymore after doing that. Now, what is, what is a laundry initiation all about? Well, in order to practice the form of tantric Buddhism, um, well, um, scratch, in order to practice any form of tantric Buddhism, uh, the idea, you can't just go off and practice Tantric Buddhism um, by yourself, you know, uh, you can't just read a book about how to do a Tantric meditation and then just do it. Um, 
speak. Uh, I mean, you can try it. I wouldn't recommend it. I actually, please don't try it. Um, but you know, they say it can basically drive you crazy or even kill you, um, which may seem silly to you, but I take it very seriously. Um, and that's why I don't teach tantric meditation or Vajrayana diamond way Buddhism practice because well basically I'm not qualified to um but again yeah in order to practice this type of stuff you have to be initiated into it so I was initiated into the laundry system which is based around the Havajra Tantra which um is a particular tantric text which describes the deity of Havajra and if you don't know what tantric meditation is all about essentially it's uh, visualizing yourself as the deity of the tantra now the thing about tantra of course again is it's supposed to be super secret you know you're not supposed to talk about it uh, to varying degrees now yeah I mean you kind of have to figure it out your own <laughs> Uh, you know, some people are like, you shouldn't even tell people that you practice the Vajrayana. You know, other people are like, it's fine to talk about. And then, of course, you know, there are scholars that write about it. And I don't know, I generally, I try not to talk about my own personal experiences with the initiation and the practice, you know, the things that happen. Um, I don't talk about it in specifics. Um, but with that being said, like, if you really want to, you know, <laughs> you can read about how I was initiated in, in, into the Savadra Tantra. Um, so yeah, it was two weeks in Walden. Pretty intense to me, um, to be honest. Uh, you know, six, about six hours of Dharma lectures a day. Um... You know, starting off with about 45 minutes of chanting in Tibetan. Um, and, yeah, it was a, it was a strange time for me. Because um, the thing about being a Buddhist, and particularly being a Tibetan Buddhist, uh, is I've never felt very... Let me, let me, I've just never really felt very like I vibe very well with other white Buddhists particularly other white Buddhists that were practicing Tibetan Buddhism uh, so I felt a bit isolated to be honest it was, and it was roughly the makeup of the group was roughly about a third Tibetan a third Chinese and then a third Westerner you know American European um but, yeah, so I, I went through a lot of ups and downs during that time and, you know, to the point where I was like, you know, whatever, fuck Buddhism, I'm done with it, this is stupid, I just want to go make money, you know, um, but yeah, it really challenged me, but, you know, I'm just, now here I am, and it was probably the mo one of the most profound experiences of my life. Um, the initiation itself was very, uh, yeah, 
I'll just say it's one of the trippiest things I've ever experienced. Um, yeah, it, it was powerful. Um, but you know, like, again, it's like, it's very, you know, it depends on how seriously you take this stuff. And so like, you know, as I mentioned, you know, that there was a lot of Chinese people there and you know why we're at this point in this super secret ceremony and again i feel okay talking about this because you can read about it in a book if you want but you know one part of the ceremony is putting on a crown and so you know they all give us crowns and we all put them on and as soon as uh, <laughs> these chinese people next to me as soon as they put on the crown they whip out their iphones and start taking selfies <laughs> so i'm like oh yeah super secret huh <laughs> but you know it, it I, like that stuff doesn't bother me uh, like i just if anything I, f I find it funny and you know it's not to say that like i'm the better practitioner here or anything uh, it's really not a judgment call um but yeah i just it's just funny that there's layers to these types of things and like some people take the secrecy super seriously and other people don't um so yeah i come back from the laundry God, I was like so just like buzzing um, from that. I mean, really felt like after I got back, like I had tasted, tasted enlightenment. Um, but yeah, so I got back and I was actually training to be a meditation teacher at the time um, through another program, the, Inter this, uh, the Interdependence Project. That's where uh, Kimberly Brown was my teacher. And uh, it, it was a great program for sure. But as much as I was, you know, going through these... Uh, you know, going deeper into my meditation practice, um, I was hitting a wall in terms of my mental health. Um, and so, yeah, by the end of that summer, I was just like completely distraught and overwhelmed by life and everything. Um, that's when I started therapy and I dropped the meditation uh, teacher training program. Uh, now, with that being said, <laughs> I do feel like I did stand out pretty well in that class, and I'm very confident in my abilities to teach meditation, even though I didn't complete it and get the certificate. Um, frankly, I thought it was the best there. I'll say it. Uh, so... Yeah, I drop out of the program, but I do start a meditation program at the Rubin uh, while I'm still there. Uh, basically a free meditation program for seniors, which was really nice. Um, and I would lead a tour, you know, pick two pieces of art, show the art, and, uh, you know, then we go meditate, which was excellent. And it was really fun to have these same people come back every, every month and... Uh, you know, continue this kind of a more in-depth conversation with them. Um, but by the end of 2019, 
I got laid off um, from the Reuben. Um, it's all right. It happens. It is a nonprofit after all, and uh, you know, a niche nonprofit. Uh, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so, but with that being said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for the time that I had in the Reuben. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today, wouldn't be doing this, wouldn't be doing this podcast uh, if it wasn't for my experience there. And the experience I gained from being a tour guide specifically, you know, I was never, never felt like I was a great speaker or great at explaining things to people. I was always kind of shy. Uh, but it turned out I had a knack for talking about this stuff. And uh, even though I don't work at the Reuben anymore, I think I still do have a knack for talking about this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, so that's basically where uh, we are today. Um, you know, I've spent uh, this past year building up the podcast, you know, building out my client base. Um you know, just trying to get better and better all the time. Uh, I did mention my mental health struggles, and I'm doing a lot better than I was uh, about three years ago uh, in 2018. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I'm really excited for w what. I could possibly build with this, with my teachings and with this podcast. Uh, so if you like me and you like what you've heard, you know, and want to work with me one-on-one -on -one to do meditation, please reach out. Um, also some exciting things too, along with my mental health. Another thing that's been fundamental, fundamental to me besides just my meditation practice, um, is, um, my bioenergetics practice, which is bioenergetics is a body-based therapy that actually stems from the lineage, as it were, of Sigmund Freud. Um, and so I'm training to become a certified teacher in that. So I'm going to be teaching and talking more about bioenergetics and uh, about the person whose uh, teachings and discoveries really led to bioenergetics, um, Wilhelm Reich. Uh, who, to me, he means a lot to me. Um, that was another big kind of eye-opening moment for me was when I discovered him and his work. Uh, so I've actually, now that I've got this one solo podcast under my belt, um, I think I might do more deep dives into like particular topics where I'm just talking myself. So Wilhelm Reich definitely would be one I would want to do. Um, but yeah, so I think we covered just about everything. Um, I'm sure not everything, but you know, you, you got a better idea of who I am and what, what my experience is and how I've come to be here talking to you about this particular topic. Um, but yeah. Again, I really appreciate you listening. I guess at this point, you've probably realized that we are not going to do a guided meditation during this podcast. Um, but we can just take a few moments to feel our breath, to feel our body.
sink into presence. And realize that not only are we doing this for ourselves, but we practice for the benefit of all sentient beings. All right, well, I think I'm approaching the hike center now, so thank you for spending this time with me. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time. Bye. This has been another episode of Meditating with Friends. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to learn more about my meditation teachings and programs, check out my website, jeremymcmindfulness.com. 